Morning. In case you missed David's reading of scripture or weren't able to listen to the whole thing, I want to state the obvious. This is a sad story. It's sad on the surface, and as you dig into it, it gets even sadder. Um, Paul says in Romans 15, 14, that whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction. So even sad stories like this have benefit for us, but insofar as we don't sit in judgment over the people of Israel, but instead see ourselves in their shoes. And that's my hope and prayer this morning is that as we go through this, as we see what Israel does in this story, that we see that this is the same sort of thing that we are so capable of doing ourselves. Um, I have a lot to go through this morning. Frankly, I'm a little worried about time. Uh, so we're going we're gonna to jump into it. Um, for those of you who like an outline before we start, this sermon is broken up into five categories or five part, uh, sections. First, there's some basic history and context that you need to understand. Um, we're going to look at that inclusive of verses one to four. Second, and these next three parts all revolve around the truth. This story is fundamentally about Israel's response, their reaction to the truth, their poor reaction to the truth. And so we're going to be looking at verses 5 to 8 and look at how Israel neglects or ignores the truth in their ask for a king. Then we're going to pause, zero in on verse 6 and look at how in asking for a king, Israel misuses the truth. They abuse, they misuse the truth. Fourth, we'll look at verses 10 to 22 in summary and see how Israel's ask for a king results in their rejection of the truth. After denying or ignoring God's testimonies, after abusing God's word, Israel rejects God's warning in verses 10 to 22. And then we'll conclude by looking at just three of the many, many applications we can make of this passage to our lives. But we'll conclude by looking at three. So with that, why don't we pray and we can jump right into things. Father, we thank you for even sad stories like this. We thank you for the instruction that we get from seeing how sin works in the lives of our spiritual forefathers. And I just, I pray this morning, Lord, that you would let us sit under your word, not sit over it, that we would hear with open hearts, that we would be a people who are receptive to your truth, that we would be humbled that we would be convicted, that we'd be encouraged, and that our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, would be glorified. In his name I pray. Amen. I love that amen. I really do. All right. So background in context. Um, really, there are two things that we need to see before we get to Israel's ask for a king. In verse 5, they do ask for a king. That is the pivotal thing that happens in the story. But we will not understand that ask and the context for it and why it's so bad if we don't understand a couple of pieces of context. So two things. One is the bigger picture, sort of macro situation, where this falls in redemptive history, where this falls in Israel's history, what's kind of generally going on as we get to 1 Samuel 8. And then second... Israel is going through a legitimate national crisis. Um, they're going through a legitimate national crisis in the story, and I think in fairness, we need to understand what that is. Otherwise, this just seems like a crazy ask on their part. So 
First thing is this bigger picture context. Chronologically, the book of 1 Samuel follows Judges. In fact, these first uh, seven, eight chapters of 1 Samuel really is almost a continuation of the book of Judges. Uh, the book of Judges, if I was going to summarize that in a sentence, I would say that it's a cycle of idolatry, oppression, repentance, and deliverance. It's a cycle, a 300-year cycle of idolatry, oppression, repentance, and deliverance. When Israel conquers the promised land, uh, we see that in the book of Joshua, they don't conquer every bit of it. There are still nations that are left, and this gets Israel into trouble, either through their direct adoption of uh, idolatry or through the intermarrying of the women who are uh, in these nations, and then the indirect adoption of idolatry. Israel gets in trouble. They ultimately abandon their proper worship of God. They fall into idolatry, and God lets them be oppressed by foreign nations. Those same nations that they are like in that moment, the, the same nations that they're emulating, come in and conquer Israel for a time. Some, some degree of badness, it, it can be really, really bad or, or fairly light, but Israel is ultimately oppressed, and it lasts for a while. They cry out for deliverance, and God raises up someone. Now, we call these people judges. They raise up judges. There are 12 of them, I think. And the judge, first thing they do is they call Israel to repentance. They point out that the oppression that they're experiencing is because of their idolatry. And Israel repents, ultimately. And the judge, miraculously through God, delivers Israel from whatever oppression that they're suffering. And then it happens again, and again, and again, and again. For 300 years. America is what, 250-something years old, 270, right on that ballpark? Imagine 300 years of this cycle over and over and over and over again. This is the story of your great-great-grandparents and your great-grandparents and your grandparents and your parents. That's kind of the context that we're approaching when we get to just the book of 1 Samuel in general. Um, in fact, Samuel is not just a prophet. He is Israel's last judge. The first seven chapters of the book of 1 Samuel is Samuel's time as a judge. So you have the book of Judges, it ends, and then 1 Samuel immediately picks up that story. Uh, and in fact, you see the same cycle play out in Samuel's ministry as well. The first three chapters of 1 Samuel are really just his birth and calling. It's a miraculous birth, um, a miraculous calling as a prophet. But then in chapters 4, 5, and 6 in 1 Samuel, Israel falls into idolatry. The Philistines, who is their big enemy of this time, of this day, comes in and oppresses Israel, and they cry out for a deliverer. And what happens? God asks or directs Samuel to save them. Um, I'm going to read a, a couple of passages from 1 Samuel 7, uh, verses 3 to 4. Same thing happens again in the cycle. God tells Samuel to call Israel to repentance. Uh, the text there says, Samuel spoke to all of the house of Israel, saying, If you return to the Lord with all of your heart, remove your foreign guard, gods and the Ashtaroth from among you, and direct your hearts to the Lord and serve him alone, he will deliver you from the hands of the Philistines. So the sons of Israel removed the Baals and the Ashtaroth and served the Lord alone. So again, same cycle. Idolatry, clearly here. Oppression, repentance, and then comes deliverance. God uses Samuel to beat the Philistines off. In fact, 1 Samuel 7, 13 
says, so the Philistines were subdued and they did not come any more within the border of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all of the days of Samuel. So as we approach our text, bigger picture context is this cycle of idolatry, oppression, deliverance, I'm sorry, repentance and deliverance. 300 year cycle, 300 year cycle. And it's not just, this isn't just you know, distant ancient history for Israel, it's literally happened in the lifetime of the people we're gonna be reading about. So that's the, that's the more immediate context here, that's the bigger picture context. Now let's read verses one to four in our text and talk about this national crisis facing Israel. <clears throat> it came about, verse one, when Samuel was old, that he appointed his sons judges over Israel. Now the name of the firstborn was Joel and the name of his second Abijah. They were judging in Beersheba. His sons, however, did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after dishonest gain and took bribes and perverted justice. Then all of the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. Okay, so verse one starts off by telling us Samuel is old. Um, and as we saw from, from chapter seven, Samuel has had a very successful lifetime keeping Israel defended. The Philistines were subdued and they were unable to make any inroads against Israel in the days of Samuel's life. But he is getting on in years and his enemies know it. There are other places in 1 Samuel where this is mentioned. Um, 1 Samuel 9.16 for Samuel 10.5 and 12.12. 12. It's a little bit of, of those passages kind of pointing back and explaining this. But we know from those passages that around this time, the Philistines had started to come back. The guy who's been kicking their butts for you know, the last 50 years is old, he's weak. So they're starting to come back. Moreover, uh, there's another group, another nation, the Amorites. They're looking like they want a piece of the action too. They're also eyeing Israel. You can, you can tell that there's uh, you know, an invasion brewing on the horizon. And, 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 and knowing what we know about how invasions worked at this time, it's probable that portions of Israel, probably the outskirts, have started to have the first fruits of that invasion. Usually you would kind of come in, you'd scout the land, maybe build a fort. Um, it's probable that Israel is seeing something impending on the horizon, two different countries wanting to come in and attack them. So war is on the horizon, their, their prophet is old, and their enemies are at the gates. Now, it's a scary time. If you were an Israelite at that time, you would probably be looking to your leader for, for, for guidance, for, for protection, to see what he is ultimately going to do. And so it's a big deal that verse two tells us that Samuel has delegated some of his responsibilities to his sons. And that verse three tells us that it's really, really not working out well. Uh, verse three again says that Samuel's sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. This is a huge deal. This is something that is forbidden all over the Old Testament. Now at this time, a lot of the passages that you know, I might reference or allude to haven't been written yet, but to give you a sense of flavor, uh, Psalm 26:10, Proverbs 15:27, Proverbs 17:23, Isaiah 33:15 to 16, Ezekiel 22:12, Amos 5:12, Habakkuk 1:2 to 4. They all say the same thing. Do not do this. Do not do this. Do not pervert justice. Do not seek after dishonest gain. You weren't meant to write those down, by the way. Um, 
They all say the same thing. I'm going to read one, you know, Deuteronomy 16, 18 to 19. Uh, there, there Moses says, You shall appoint for yourself judges and officers in all your towns, which the Lord your God is giving you according to your tribes, and they shall judge the people with righteous judgment. You shall not distort justice. You shall not be partial. You shall not take a bribe. For a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and perverts the words of the righteous. Now, a judge, this isn't perfectly accurate, but, but think of them like, like mayors or, or governors. These are both in, in some cases religious, but at least, at least civil magistrates in Israel. Um, and, and Samuel picked his own kids who turned out to be worthless, utterly unqualified. In, in leadership, in government, character matters, faithfulness matters, integrity matters, and Samuel's sons took bribes and perverted justice. And remember, the funny thing about bribes is they require money. They require goods. You've got you to give something in order to get something. And so when bribes are given, who loses? It's the poor that lose. It's the people who have the least who are ultimately the ones who suffer the most when leaders chase after dishonest gain, when justice is perverted. And so the people are probably not big fans of Samuel's sons, and they're probably losing faith fairly legitimately in Samuel himself. And so there is a crisis here. Israel's enemies are at the gates. Two nations want to invade them and, and may even be beginning to do so. Their leader is old. He has stopped going out and, and doing a circuit around Israel and judging them. Instead, he has delegated responsibilities to his sons who are completely worthless. Things are scary. It's a legitimate national crisis. And it's appropriate for the men of Israel to want to do something about it. It's appropriate. It's right. So in our text, in, in, uh, in verse 4, when it says, All of the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah, this makes a ton of sense. They have a problem, and they're coming to the right man to address it. The issue is how they address it. They should have approached Samuel. They should have called out his sons, and they should have asked the Lord for guidance or for deliverance from their enemies. Sadly, that is not what they do. So this brings us to verses 5 to 8, and really the, the, the main beginning of our story. It, um, and, and, and specifically, we want to look at how Israel's ask for a king results from their neglect of the truth. This is, this is an ask for a king that results from their neglect of the truth. Verses 5 to 8. They said to him, Behold, you have grown old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. So far, so good. Now appoint a king for us to judge us like all of the nations. Whenever Israel says they want to be like the nations, that's the first hint that something wrong is here. It's, that's not good. And of course, verse 6, but the thing was displeasing in the sight of Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. The Lord said to Samuel, listen to the voice of the people in regard to all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. Like all of deeds which they have done since the day I brought them up from Egypt, even to this day, in that they have forsaken me and served other gods, so they are doing to you also. So instead of asking God for help, instead of asking for guidance, instead of asking for the prophet to intervene, they ask for a king, which is bold. 
Samuel is Israel's judge and longtime protector. This ask is essentially asking Samuel to retire. This is a thank you for your service. Let's have somebody else step in, please. That's what they're asking. Israel seems to think that a king is going to solve this national crisis. They don't really explain their thinking. They just say they want to be like the nations in verse 5. Uh, but if you skip down to verse 20, you see a little bit more of the picture. There they say that they want a king so that they may be like the nations, so their king may judge us. And then critically, they say, so that the king may go out before us and fight our battles. This is about safety and security. That's what this, ultimately, this ask ultimately is about. This is about safety and security. Israel seems to be thinking, if we can just be like the people who keep beating us up, we'll be safe. Surely it's because they've got kings and armies and other things. That, that's why we keep losing these battles. And I think you have to remember, too, that at this point in time, Israel is a collection of tribes. There is no centralized government, really, to speak of. They don't have a standing army. They don't have professional soldiers. When a bad guy comes knocking at their door, whatever tribe he you know, attacks, they attack, they are ultimately responsible for driving them off, and hopefully the other tribes of Israel will come to their aid. Uh, people come to battle with whatever protection and armor that they may have and that they're comfortable using. A lot of times this means Israel is defended by farmers using farming tools. When they look out across the other nations, though, they see kings, professional soldiers, strategists, armor, chariots, training, well-made weapons, those sorts of things. So with the, enemy, with the enemy at the gate, with Samuel old, with his sons immoral, Israel is scared. They're looking for something to keep them safe. And that something is government. Now in verse 6, we're told that this request for a king is wrong. The ESV renders this, but the thing was displeasing in the sight of Samuel. The word for displeased means evil or bad. A slightly more literal rendering is this was evil in Samuel's eyes. Um, in chapter 12, verse 17, Samuel is recounting this event to the people. And this is what he says. You shall know and see that your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord in asking for yourselves a king. So this is clearly an evil ask. And verse 7 tells us why this was such a wicked request by Israel. God says they, in making this, they are rejecting me from being king over them. So on the surface, this ask is Israel looking to get Samuel to retire and be replaced. But there's a deeper spiritual reality to their ask. This ask isn't ultimately about Samuel. It's about God. And notice in verse 8 that God links their ask here to their habitual idolatry. This is no innocent ask for new leadership. This is Israel being scared and foolishly putting their trust for safety and security in a robust government rather than the God of this universe. This is unbelief and idolatry at its core. They want something they can see and be assured of rather than God who they cannot see and must simply trust. They are facing a legitimate national crisis and rather than going to God, they are seeking to replace his protection with human strength. Which isn't just evil, it is absolutely, unreservedly stupid. I mean, going back to that, that, the bigger picture context we talked about at the beginning of this, 
that 300-year cycle in the book of Judges. Israel was not oppressed by foreign nations because of how great those nations were. It wasn't the strength of their armies that got Israel taken over. It was Israel's sins that caused that to happen. They were oppressed because God oppressed them. The instrument he used were those foreign nations, but it was ultimately God chastising his people. They weren't beaten down because the, the Philistines had chariots. They lost because they replaced God with other things. And yet here is Israel ignoring those lessons and doing the exact same thing again. And again, remember this cycle of idolatry and oppression and repentance and deliverance, this isn't a distant memory. This isn't something that they heard stories about in the great-grandfather's day. It literally happened in the lifetime of the people making this ask. In order to get here, Israel has had to completely neglect and ignore everything that God has been communicating to them for three centuries now. This is the result of sinful human hearts neglecting to be informed by and shaped by God's truth. Israel has completely missed the main points and biggest lessons from Exodus, from Joshua, and the stories of the judges. And as a result, they have idolatry, idolatrously asked for a king. And it gets worse. Israel didn't just <clears throat> neglect or ignore the truth. They abused it as well. And that's our next section. So I just got done laboring over how bad this is, right? I mean, I made it pretty clear this is not a, this is not a neutral ask. So what should we expect to see Samuel do? Tear his robes, call them to repentance, chastise them in some way. That's what we should expect him to do. But it's not what he does. He sees this request as evil. Verse 6 told us that. And then the second half of verse 6 says he went and prayed to the Lord. And notice God's response in verse 7 tells him to obey the voice of the people, which sort of implies that Samuel asked the Lord, what shall I do? That's kind of odd, isn't it? If my, if my kid came to me and, and, and asked to do something wrong, I'm not going to say, let me go pray about it. Like, I'm going to tell them no. I'm going to try to instruct them. But Samuel doesn't do that. Samuel goes and prays, and it seems that he's asked God for guidance here. And I think the reason for that is Israel is trying to be clever. The, the ask that they're making here mirrors language in Deuteronomy 17, 14. In Deuteronomy 17, it's, it's a provision of the law that sets forth the rules and the selection for a king in Israel. And it looks like the elders of Israel are trying to get Samuel to implement the process that God lays out there. So here's the two passages kind of side by side. Verse 6, now appoint a king for us to judge us like all the nations. Deuteronomy 17, 14 says, when you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me, like all the nations that are around me, and then explains what to do. So it, these are really, really parallel. It looks like Israel is citing Deuteronomy 17. And that's probably the reason why Samuel went to the Lord and asked for guidance as to what to do. But what's interesting is Deuteronomy 17 is, you know, uh, when, when, when Moses is, is talking about this ask for a king, 
You know, he doesn't, he doesn't say, when you come into the land the Lord is giving you, and you say, I'll set a king over you like the nations around me, uh, knock it off and repent. He doesn't say that. He, he goes on to give a process by which a king can be installed. The law actually allows a king to be installed. So on the one hand, this is an evil ask by the people. On the other hand, the law allows this to happen, so Samuel goes to God to talk about what to do. And I think it's important, though, and this is kind of the main point about Israel abusing the text, the law is not condoning bad behavior here. Deuteronomy 17.14 is not a neutral process for the selection of a king. It is a prophetic statement that is condemnatory of Israel. Um, Deuteronomy 17 and, and that the, 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 section, uh, the, the section having a king is, is sort of the moral equivalent of me having a kid who is a drunkard and telling them, look, when you sin against God again and you get drunk, here's what needs to happen. I'm not, it's not meant to be flattering for my kid. I'm not, I'm not condoning or excusing what they're doing. I'm trying to protect them, ultimately. God is not condoning the evil of the people's ask for a king in Deuteronomy. He is simply loving his people enough to ensure that when it happened, it would happen on his terms, and that his people would be protected despite their sin. Israel should have read that passage, seen the love of God there, and said, may it never be that I make that request. May it never be that my children make that request. Instead, they're appealing to it. Instead, they're taking what should be a warning to them as permission. This is the same mindset that the religious leaders had in Jesus' day who went to the Old Testament law, noticed that there was a provision for divorce, and said, I can divorce my wife for any reason. They're, they're, they're taking as a license what should be a sobering warning. And in doing so, they are abusing or misusing God's word. So this ask for a king is not just Israel ignoring their history. They're, they're mishandling the scriptures to do it as well. Which brings us to verses 10 to 22. And despite Israel's idolatrous ask, despite Israel's abuse of the word of God to make it, God chooses to show them one last mercy. He chooses to show them one last mercy, which unfortunately they reject. I'm not going to reread the verses for the sake of time, but in verse 10, we see that God has decided to give the people what they want. He directed Samuel, in verse 9, to solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall rule over them. They have, they've asked for a human king, and God is going to tell them what that's going to be like so that they may change their mind. That's what verses 10 to 18 really are. It's, it's Samuel essentially telling Israel why this is a bad idea. And I think the whole section can be summed up in the last line of verse 17. He will take a tenth of your flocks, and you will, yourselves will become his servants or slaves. In this section, in 10 to 22, Samuel uses the word take repeatedly. He will take your sons. He will take your daughters. He will take your fields. He will take your produce. He will take your vineyards. He will take your servants. You want a king for security? You don't want to be oppressed by a foreign power? In doing so, you will be voluntarily subjecting yourselves to oppression and slavery by your own government. Moses didn't do this. Joshua didn't do this. The judges didn't do this. Samuel didn't do this. Israel, in a blasphemous attempt for freedom, is rejecting the very freedom that God's rule provides them. And that's a perfect picture of sin, isn't it? 
No matter what sin offers, it never lives up to its promise. Never. It, it does the opposite. Where sin promises life, you get death. Where it promises freedom, you get bondage. Where it promises joy or fun or pleasure, you end up with sorrow. And God does promise that this will end in anguish in verse 18. He says, in that day, you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. But Israel does not listen, which brings us to the very end of our passage. It says, but the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, no, but there shall be a king over us. Again, that we may be like the other nations that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel in verse 19. This is nothing less than the rejection of the word of God. That's what's happening here. Israel has abandoned God in their heart to make the ask. They have proposed a system that replaces God in the form of human government, and now they are rejecting God's gracious warning to them. And terrifyingly, God imposes judgment on them by giving them what they want. Verses 21 and 22, when Samuel had heard of the word, or sorry, had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, obey their voice and make them a king. There are, there are no more terrifying words than a sinner can hear than God saying, you can have what you want. The worst, most tragic punishment in this world short of death is to be given over to your sinful desires. And having neglected God's truth, having abused his word, having rejected his gracious warnings, Israel's going to get what they want. It's not going to work out. What does it mean for us? This is a sad story, it's hard, it's, it's frustrating to read. It'd be really easy to throw up our hands and condemn Israel here, really, really easy. But what Israel's doing here is something you and I are perfectly capable of doing as well. The same sinful heart that ultimately resulted in this ask beats in our flesh as well. And so th there's three application points that I wanna look at this morning. We could probably spend a whole other sermon just talking about this passage as it relates to our lives, but there are three in particular that I want to focus on. And the first one, I think, is we need to see ourselves in Israel's shoes here. We cannot miss this. We have to see ourselves in Israel's shoes. They, they ignored and neglected the word of God. How about us? How often do we skip our time in the scriptures? And let me be very clear, you can have regular time in the scriptures, you can be reading it every day, and you can still be neglecting the word of God. So maybe you're not, maybe you're not, uh, 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 not reading it, maybe you're reading it faithfully every day. When I, was a, when I was a brand new believer, reading the Bible became a very legalistic thing for me, and it was a matter of getting it done. You know, I, I set a minimum, I have to at least read three chapters today. Maybe I followed a Bible plan, I can't remember. But I had, I had a minimum, and if I didn't meet that minimum, I felt bad about it, and so I read through it, come hell or high water. Didn't really learn anything, didn't really apply anything, 
Didn't really touch my soul, but I read it. How often do we read to haphazardly? How often do we read to check a box? How often do we read and, and fail to, to meditate or reflect or apply what we read to our lives? How often do we skip over the hard truths or the hard passage or refuse to let a text properly rebuke us? How often do we prefer books about the Bible to the Bible itself? We can so easily ignore God's word. And we're certainly not above abusing it either. You know, in 2,000 years, in the last 2,000 years, who have been the chief abusers of the scriptures? Christians, it's us. Name a major heresy or doctrinal issue, and chances are it came from the church. The vast majority of the time, it originated through someone in the church and probably from someone in a position of authority. I mean, here's some, here's some, some fun practical questions for us. They're not really fun, but um, you know, how, how often have you sat in a Bible study and heard believers, maybe even doing it yourself, talk about what a passage means to you rather than putting the hard work in to answer what the passage actually means? How often have we opened our Bibles and read without stopping to ask the basic questions like, to whom is this written? Where is this in the overall biblical story? What genre of writing is this? How often do we just sort of read and get impressions and go? How often when you read a book that cites scripture, do you stop to make sure what the author is saying is in its proper context? And by the way, if you are a big reader of devotionals, devotionals aren't bad, but be careful. They are the gateway drug to abusing the scriptures. Love Charles Spurgeon to death, but that man, cannot, that, that man had no problem finding texts that just did not say what he took them to mean. How often are we undiscerning as to what we, we listen to or read? How often have we used scripture to justify something in our lives that we probably shouldn't have? And what Israel did in the story is, is crazy, it's stupid, it's evil, and it's something that we are so easily subject to doing ourselves. It's a pattern that we can easily find ourselves slipping into. Which is a great segue into point number two, our second application point this morning. We, we really need each other. We really need each other. If our hearts are inclined to turn from God, to ignore and abuse his word, and to refuse to be shaped by it, how can we be helped in our fight with those tendencies? Where is it that we can be called out for our sin, be encouraged to believe God's promises, and be held accountable for our treatment of the scriptures? Our local church, it's here, it's us. It's our life together as a body, as a church, which is perhaps the most powerful means of grace that God has given us in our fight of faith. If we want to avoid Israel's failures, if we want to recognize that, well, I'm sorry, if we want to avoid Israel's failures, we need to recognize that God has designed that believers live, live in open, honest, loving, and accountable communities. And I want to be really clear, I don't mean this. I don't mean what's happening here on Sunday morning. This is Sunday service, this is Lord's Day worship, this is critical and important, but this is part of what it means to be a church. If coming here on Sunday is your primary understanding of what it means to be part of a church, you are fundamentally missing it. It's part of it. It's an important part of it, but it's not the whole thing. God has ordained that our faith be lived out in a body of other believers. We are to be in each other's lives, building each other up, encouraging one another, supporting one another, and yes, rebuking and admonishing one another. 
when needed. Regardless of how uncomfortable that might be, regardless of whether or not that causes us to risk losing a friendship, that's how we ought to be interacting with one another. And by the way, if you or I were to get lovingly admonished, we should be not upset, but grateful. We should be opening and inviting ourselves to those sorts of interactions with other believers. That is, that is what the church is supposed to be. It's about living in an open, honest, loving, accountable community. Uh, Paul in Ephesians 4, 16 to 17, directly ties our spiritual growth to our life as a body. What happens from the pulpit is meant to equip, but we grow together in love. That's how God has designed us to flourish. And I, I want to beat this, this horse because right now, I, I, don't, you know, I don't know if it's, it's a surprise to anybody, but we live in a pretty divisive time. We live in, in, in a day where I have never seen so many different issues that people feel strongly about that could possibly disrupt or divide body life in a, in a local church. And so as I, as I look at our passage in 1 Samuel, as I, as I see the Bible's statement of our desperate need for one another, I feel compelled under this point to just remind us that we are a family and we ought to live that way. We are a family and we ought to live that way. That's what we're called to do. With respect to those divisive issues, I hope that we care more about what's happening in this body, how the people in this body are doing, than politics or the pandemic or elections or things we want to have opened or, or the condition of this temporary state or this temporary country. I'm hoping we're more focused on how we're doing than any of those things. I'm hoping that we're, we're maximizing opportunities to be in fellowship with one another, whatever that looks like. And I'm hoping that we are actively making sure that there aren't people who are being left behind. And I think this last point is especially important to make. Right now in this room, I'm looking at probably the majority of Veritas members and regular attenders, which is great. There's a downside to it. When, when the majority of people here, it's really easy not to notice the ones who aren't. So look around. Who isn't here? Who hasn't been coming? Who hasn't been here or is only coming intermittently? We're a family. We should care to know if there are people slipping through the cracks right now who need community and support. We should be asking ourselves, you and I, because this is not simply the elders' jobs, how we can be reaching out and encouraging and bringing people back into the fold who have gone silent or missing in action. To live out what God has called us to, the entire body, all of us, need to be actively living our lives in this gloriously messy thing called a church. So we need to see ourselves in Israel's shoes. We need to see our need for each other. And I'm going to choose to end this sermon on good news, which is our, our third and final point. We need to see that we have a God who can work all of this messiness together for our good. And Israel's decision here for a king will cause heartbreak. Saul is a train wreck. You can, you can draw a direct line between this ask and incredible national tragedy for Israel, the splitting up into two kingdoms, the Assyrian captivity, the Babylonian captivity, Israel has purchased generational pain because of the ask they're making here. But there's another direct line that you can draw. From this, after Saul, 
God gives Israel David. And from David, we get the promises of a future, unending, righteous kingdom, a kingdom of peace, righteousness, and joy. And from this, we get the Messiah, who in his first coming ushered in the kingdom and wiped away the wrath of God for all those who believe. And from this, we get the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, who now sits on David's throne and will rule forever in holiness and righteousness in love. Israel sinned terribly in making their ask here. And God, in his infinite, glorious mercy, is going to use it to bring about good to countless people, has used it to bring about good to countless people. So God delights to do, take even our sins and failings and make it work together for our good and his glory. After all, the single greatest act of evil in the history of the universe, the murder of the Son of God, was also the triumph of God over evil itself. God, we serve a God who takes even these, these sorts of ter- terrible failures and weaves them together for our good. And so Israel's sinful ask for a king will result in Israel's perfect king sitting on his throne. We get to, we get to end our time this morning rejoicing that there is nothing outside of the will of our sovereign God, that there is nothing that he cannot redeem for our good, and there is nothing that can surprise him or ruin his plans. I can promise you that at some point in time we will neglect his word. I can promise you at some point in time you will abuse his word. It may even be abused from time to time from this pulpit. But I can also promise you that no matter how hard we fail, how badly we screw up, we have a God who loves us and is working every molecule in creation for his glory and our good. So I hope as we conclude our time this morning that we are humbled, but also encouraged. Humbled to see that you know, what Israel did is something that we are more than capable of doing, but we have a God who loves us enough to triumph even over our sins. Let's go to that God in prayer. Father, we thank you again for your endless mercies and love. We thank you that you are God who works good from evil. Lord, we confess that we are a people who would be happy to neglect, happy to abuse your truth. And Lord, I pray that you would let us see that. I pray that you would grant repentance for anyone who is currently doing that in any any overt way. And I pray, Lord, that we would be all the more committed together to live our lives together as a family, that we may be encouraged and accountable, that we may grow together in sanctification and love. I ask you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.